This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, Max Feinday, CEO of WarShield, tells us why National Indigenous Peoples Day is an opportunity to learn more about Indigenous peoples and cultures in Canada so we can celebrate them and learn what our neighbors are up to. Greg Fish takes us through the world of weird things, including the weird world of organized skepticism and why did it seemingly vanish? What damage did its implosion leave behind and why he wants it back again? More skeptics. And are you okay with pigs and dinosaurs? Two separate stories. That's all on the Shift Daily Podcast. This is the Shift Podcast. June 21st, first day of summer, and the solstice plays perfectly into the creator and all things earthly. That is a beautiful statement, isn't it? It's an incredibly faithful statement for many. And if you had no idea what I was talking about and you just thought that Shane was talking about, hey, cool, man, the earth and the sun in the summer, that is a core piece of many indigenous beliefs. It depends on where you are and, and where your family heritage comes from, of course, because it's a little different for everybody. But fundamentally, safe bet that the summer solstice is an incredibly uh, important part, if you think about it, of indigenous communities. The earth, everything to do with the earth and the animals and the plants and the trees and everything that goes around. And so that is why we're talking about this indigenous day, which I got to be honest, I really didn't even know was a thing. I'm lucky that I have a friend who I trust dearly with my life that um, I get to ask these questions to. Mexico on Fine Day is here. Uh, Treaty 6, Sweetgrass First Nation is where he's from from, uh, also known as Saskatchewan. And, um, and works inside a corporation called Warchild. He's the uh, CEO of that and uh, Warshield, excuse me, uh, and CEO of that. And Warshield is creating relationships between indigenous communities and not only politics, but business and growth and future. Is that a safe, safe evaluation in layman's terms, Max? Absolutely. You nailed it right on the head there. Perfect. Well, welcome. Thanks for coming back. It's great to see you. Nasquin Shane, really appreciate the chance to, to have a conversation with you today. Indigenous Day, don't we have Reconciliation Day in September, man? Uh, why? Why is it? Is this just seriously politics that they took a day in September for Indigenous Peoples uh, Day because there was nothing else around there, and this is too close to Canada Day? Is it? Is, is <laughs> am I being too simplistic in this? Well, you know, uh, National Indigenous uh, Peoples Day comes, you know, from. Uh, uh, our, our House of Commons, I think it was passed in 2009, actually mm-hmm. creating, uh, creating the day. And, you know, Shane, 2009, that was a long time ago, um, long before the Truth and Reconciliation Commission or their calls to action. Long yeah, the before... call to action was what, 2015-ish, right? Exactly. So this sort of predated all of all of what we now know and what we now see and uh, and what we now have it was um it was at a really interesting time in our country i think you know indigenous people indigenous politics was just waking up in a lot of ways uh that day in the house of commons there was only one first nations member of parliament that was that was in the house who who voted for that was rob clark from uh from northern saskatchewan now we know today there are over uh 10 
Indigenous MPs in uh, in the House of Commons. So, you know, the country's changed a lot since uh, since the day was established. You mentioned uh, you mentioned September. Of course, that that comes from um, the TRC and its important work. Um, and we know that day to be Orange Shirt Day, and mm-hmm. that day uh, that day is specifically about commemorating residential school survivors their journeys that they went through, the pain that they went through, and doing education on the residential school piece. I always look at June 21st as a celebration. This is really the party, and you'll see parties happening right across the country where First Nations people, Métis people, Inuit people are are flooding streets, cities, reserves, hamlets, every part of this country, celebrating who we are as a people, celebrating the culture, celebrating the traditions, and the stories and having a whole heck of a lot of bannock while we do it. <laughs> um, that's kind of like the powwows, right? You start to see that those community powwows and those big celebrations like that. I um, I want to acknowledge something that has nothing to do with Canadian Indigenous people, Polynesian Indigenous people going so far south into New Zealand, Australia. You know, you watch those rugby games and you see those rugby teams do those dances, right, before the games. And it is a tribute to... Uh, the indigenous peoples, the culture, and all the things. And when you see those, you kind of go, wow, that is cool stuff. It's also kind of scary, frankly. They look mean uh, on their faces, but they're about to play rugby. So I guess that's fair. Um, that kind of that kind of moment, I think, is sort of where I imagine that Canadian indigenous culture can be so deeply embedded into our normal every day if reconciliation day is truth and reconciliation day it's not about a look backwards it's actually i would say quite the opposite it's about a look forwards then this becomes the celebration of the culture the earth and all things creator which is such an important part and i've even learned from you how connected i feel to elements of of your faith and and your background too fair look at at where we can sort of take this celebration Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you talk about um, the celebrations starting in the summer. And so often those celebrations or ceremonies are sequestered from the city and from Canadians. Um, You know, our our community events happen in the community. And while um, I I haven't been to, you know, uh, an event in the community where they would not welcome Canadians, non-Indigenous people, um, certainly we see a lot of hesitation in Canadians participating in those community events. The nice thing about June 21st is that there are going to be events and celebrations, things to do right in people's backyards, right in the parks that they walk their dogs in or bring their kids to. Um, And they're going to uh, see and hear uh, Indigenous people celebrating. I, I, you know, I talk to Canadians um, who say that they're often, um, they don't mean to go to these celebrations, but they just hear uh, the beat of the drum and they find themselves gravitating towards it. Drawn to it. Even just in passing, right? And there's a real opportunity there. Um, you know, I think more and more about what questions should we all be asking of ourselves, Indigenous and non-Indigenous people. And, and um, you know, I have the great fortune of working in First Nations communities each and every day. And one thing that I'm often confronted with is elders talking about what their legacy is, right? And for a lot of them, their legacy was survival. 
And for, for a lot of them, their legacy was passing on what they could, right? Whether that's stories or family history or the language in some, some cases. Um, but I was in a community not that long ago and, um, and we started have a, having a conversation of what our contributions are. And this, this elder um, talked about what she wanted her contribution to be in, uh, in the year 2100. And I just think that that's such an interesting uh, question to ask ourselves for Indigenous people, but also for Canadians, right? Reconciliation is for us all. We all have a role to, to play in figuring out what we can do at an individual level, family level, corporate level, whatever it is, right? About what our contribution is for the year 2100. And I think that's a great question for Canadians to ask themselves on that day. Yeah, what are you going to do? Uh, what are you going to do future forward? When we look at what is legacy, Max, I mean, we do see um, it changing so much. And I grew up in Fort McMurray. And in Fort McMurray, there, uh, there's the Fort Mackay group, right, north of Fort McMurray. And that what an example they've set in developing business and taking opportunity and growing it. And this is going to sound flippant, and I say it flippantly on purpose, is that it's not casino culture. And there have been so many communities that have been guilty of let's build a casino because that'll help us make money. And while it did work, um, it doesn't always work. In fact, it can bring many problems back into the community too, just by the nature of what they're selling. And so what are we seeing? You talk about future forward and legacy and it, the perspective has grown and changed with this younger generation of entrepreneurs um, and community folks that are from indigenous, uh, different kinds of indigenous communities too. And it's not only um, res kids anymore. It's the kids that maybe went away to school and they live in the cities and the kids that are still back living more traditional life. Um, we are seeing a massive shift away from this notion of casino culture and more so into growing the culture, sharing the language, keeping it alive every day. I think you're, you know, I think that, um, I think you're absolutely right. A lot of the, a lot of my generation, you know, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm 32 years old. I'm the first generation in my family not to go to residential school. Um, so, you know, we're not, we're not talking about, um, um, my family being so removed from the, the traumatic, uh, events of Canadian policy, um, I think that we have an extraordinary opportunity, but with every opportunity comes a whole lot of risk. And I always say that, um, you know, self-determination and self-destruction have a lot of the same letters. And so as we face the opportunity for developing our economies or for developing our communities or for finding the way to, um, best provide for our coming generations um we have to um we have to look at uh, at things that we haven't tried and mm -hmm. i think that's so exciting we talked a little bit about um you know other international indigenous communities but that's where a lot of opportunity lays colonialism is not a canadian problem it is a global problem and uh, indigenous communities across the world have responded to it differently. I, I wonder, I wonder how indigenous people in Australia have grown their 
economies. I wonder how Indigenous people in New Zealand have wealth for their communities. I wonder what the latest innovations in tribal economic development are for uh, communities in the United States, even within Canada. I think there's an extraordinary opportunity uh, to learn from one another in terms of how do we generate wealth, how do we build communities, and how do we stop that that familiar story that your listeners are so used to hearing about, which is, you know, poverty, protest, and pain, those being the hallmarks of uh, Indigenous society that um, that I think your listeners would be so familiar with that with. Mm-hmm. I think those are um, hopefully becoming tropes of the past as we look to communities like Fort Mackay and and others who are generating wealth to say, no, no, we we know how to do business. We know how to do business in a sustainable way. And we know how to do business, not only for us, but for the next seven generations. It's not that far removed, you know, my European background and my grandfather that, you know, fixed airplanes in the war. So that's my grandfather and that's the war your father was in residential school. So there you go, pull out a generation. That's how close proximity we are to all this. And it's also worth noting too, that I think that we don't take time to understand, Max, that many of these communities are very different. Um, I learned this from you, right? That there are some communities that were incredibly transient, that in the wintertime, hey, they got smart. They were the first snowbirds, right? They They would go south and language barriers are very, very similar as you go very south, New Mexico, with certain groups of indigenous groups in Canada. And then um, you can go down to New Mexico and hear an awful lot of the same nuance and language in indigenous folks down there. And then then there are the other ones in Canada that were like, we like it here. This is where we live. We're not moving. We'll tough out the winter. And so even that fact, when you go and you just go, okay, your dad, my grandfather, and I would say, you know, benchmark generational shifts, right? Between of what they went through versus what we go through. And then you go super transient into some communities moved a lot and some stayed put. Um, those are the portage groups from Northwest Territories that all the stories of them, the, the great documentaries that have come out about those groups coming up and down the rivers through the prairies. So we have to keep that in mind, right? Like it's not, it can't be this one template. When we look at this Indigenous People's Day and what it looks like, it it's okay for it not to be just a template. Like, here you go, stamp, you did your thing. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's I think, the beauty in, in the education piece for Canadians. I know that there's some, some people who are listening to the show that have never been to the closest uh, First Nations community or, or Métis community or Inuit community, um, even though they might live have lived in the same city for the last 40 years, right? But there's always been that, um, you know, buckskin curtain, if you will, right? That's divided um, uh, Canadians in the city with uh, the nearest community, even if the nearest community is only a 15, 20, or 40-minute drive down the road, right? These are these are people um, who live there, who have developed a local economy, who come into the city often for for services and for shopping and these sorts of things, but they really can be two solitudes and two different worlds. And so, you know, I I always uh, get the question, Canadians asking, well, what can I do? You know, reconciliation is so big and so nebulous and and all that sort of stuff. But today, 
June 21st, real opportunity to just walk down to the park, right? You don't, you, you know, you can just sort of sit there and watch the programs that are happening, listen to, listen to the speakers, the storytellers, the elders, the dancers, um, and, uh, and reflect on that history of, of the city. See what opportunities there might be for further connection um, to that local community in the in the weeks or in the months ahead. I think you know we we um, often talk about learning from one another, but you know the the non-indigenous people of my parents' generation were really robbed of an opportunity to learn about indigenous people, to learn about the contributions of indigenous people, to learn about the histories or or you know just how funny indigenous people are right like this doesn't have to be a <laughs> doesn't have to be a serious topic right like this can this can be just about building relationships and with those with those built relationships you'd be surprised just how much understanding and perspective shifting can happen you know and it doesn't doesn't mean you have to read legislation it doesn't mean you have to you know go through all the volumes of the truth and reconciliation commission just have a coffee with somebody say hey talk about talk about each other's lives swap yeah. some stories and from there comes a whole bunch of understanding yeah tell me about your dad tell me about your grandpa what's your family history where did it go yeah. So, I mean, it, I mean, put it this way, here's something that I want you to tell me something that I don't know about you and I'll tell you something that you don't know about me, but, but like of our family, like from way back. Right. Yeah. Um, so the Hewitts, which was at the time spelt very phonetically H U E T the very first documented Hewitt was 1050 and Whoa. it's not a good story. It was the first Hewitt that was documented in the Norman English speaking Norman invasion of France. So that's something from my family from way back. I mean, that's not my fault. It's not my problem. But when people say, oh, what's your family from? Well, yeah, by the way, we were the English Normans that we kind of tried to take over everybody. <laughs> um, and But that's where it all started. So that's what conversation looks like. So Max, if you will, something about your family, your dad, um, your community um, that, that we wouldn't know. Yeah, sure. Um, maybe I'll talk about my last name, Finday. It's a it's a translation. When they came and translated everybody's names into English, um, my great great grandfather, his name was Kamiokisiqueo, and that uh, that means that uh, he comes with a good day when he when he is. Uh, when he is present, uh, good weather follows him. And um, he, you know, that, that got, you know, mistranslated or whatever into Fine Day. And he played a really important role in, uh, in our community um, during the time of, of treaty making. He was the warrior chief. So he was the, the general, if you will, of my community and um, played a big part in the, the battles between Canada and uh, the Plains Cree people in the late 1800s. That's something I'm really, I'm really proud of. That's fascinating. Uh, and it does always, sun always does shine when you show up. Have you noticed that? <laughs> Traditions endure. <laughs> it does, it does endure. Um, I also had learned during Alberta's election that there are some rules around family members of treaty signing folks and political allegiance and so on. So there are all kinds of deeply rooted um, mechanisms to protect politics and 
culture communities and local community politics versus federal politics and so much more. That's quite fascinating. Most people don't know that if your grandpa signed the treaty, if you will, that you can't run for the liberal or conservative party publicly because you can't show any political allegiance. Like there's, there's a lot to be learned about the basics that we just don't know. It's a, di- you know, it's, it really is a different society. Some families take that as a, as a point of unyielding principle that they don't participate in Canadian elections. And we've seen, you know, First Nations leaders, we see chiefs talk about this. We've even seen uh, conversations around this happen uh, for, for national chiefs who say, actually, I'm not going to participate in the Canadian election cycle because that's not my cycle. I don't, I don't, it's none of my business who gets elected. They are the treaty partner, not, not treaty partisan. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have to work with whoever's there. So that's for Canadians to decide, you know, for, for me, um, I take a different tact. I'm happy to um, participate in Canadian elections because I think that there are, um, there are big stakes. And I think there are differences in how parties understand uh, the treaty relationship. Now I'm nonpartisan. I work with, I work with everybody when I, when I am, uh, doing government relations work for First Nations communities. Um, but I want to make sure that each and every political party feels like they have to be responsive and uh, and have a view of, mm-hmm. uh, of First Nations policy and policy that advances reconciliation. I think one of the most um, powerful things that we've seen in the recent years is that Canadians are agreeing with that. A higher percentage um, each time they're polled, uh, Canadians say that they want political parties to have uh, policies that define reconciliation, that improve relationships between Indigenous people and non-Indigenous people. And uh, and I think parties are going to continue to be held to a higher account. Yeah, well, I think the hypocrisy is tiresome as well about saying that we care. And oh, by the way, they don't have clean water. I mean, that's a deplorable in today's world and and just matter of factly what it is. One other thing, though, that I had, I had really also heard an anecdote of in this last election was that you also have communities that like it's OK to be like your uh, treaty culture. Right. And it's OK to be Canadian because some people that's where they go and some people do both. And it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful dance. And in this community, the anecdote that I heard was is that the community members literally go to the chiefs. They go to the elected chief and they go to the hereditary chief and they basically say, who do we vote for? And then everybody just and the chief says, you know, vote a, and everyone's like, okay, a it is. I mean, so that, that what politically serves our community, um, I don't put any judgment on that because that's kind of what Canadian politics is like for all parties these days because you don't even get to vote for the person anymore. But um, but it like it really is such a, again, speaks to the broad spectrum of so many different views. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like that's that's where First Nations people have adapted to systems that have been um, imposed on us, right? Like, and, and, you know, they probably saw how, how, similar it is for some faith groups in the past and even today you know uh there will there will be faith leaders who talk very openly about who people should vote for or or shouldn't vote for 
based on who they are or same with some some cultural communities. So I think that is like a really interesting part of how First Nations people have adapted in, you know, the last 150 years that Canada has been a country to try and uh, flex our political muscle as much as we possibly can to make sure that we're, our interests aren't forgotten about the legal obligations that Canada has for First Nations people, for Indigenous people broadly, are not forgotten about. And that when it's time to come uh, campaigning, that people are doing some door knocking on the res too. Yeah. You know, it's crazy about this political part of the conversation we're just talking about. If we just took out Indigenous and we put in union, nobody would notice. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's exactly the same thing, right? Like the, these are these like so. If anybody says, "Oh, I can't believe these," uh, you know, these communities are politicking that way. Unions, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? So, um, yeah, fascinating stuff. This is great. Uh, celebrate the day. Um, celebrate all the days. Um, make friends with someone like Max because he uh, is painfully handsome, and um, and he is funny, and the sun does shine everywhere he goes. It's weird, and. Um, and and just and and get to know the culture a little bit. Celebrate the culture. Get to know the culture. It's safe to say, Max. Don't be afraid to get it wrong. At least when you're trying to get it right. I think that we all need to embrace that on all sides of our families and where we come from. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Shane. I think you're exactly right. We're all flying uh, without instruments here, um, making it up as as we go along. But we all have the same goal. Or you know, um, if if people haven't thought about it, they should. Getting back to the treaty foundational, getting back to the foundation of the treaty relationship, which was peace, prosperity, and mutual benefit. That's mm -hmm. all First Nations people are asking for. I think that's a goal that, uh, that Canadians can work towards and achieve. Yeah. And family. I'll throw that in there too. Right. It's great to see you, brother. Thank you so much. And ask when. Always a pleasure. This is the Shift Podcast. Weird. It got very weird. I don't understand. Welcome to the world of weird, weird things with Greg Fish. Now, this may not come across as good news for many of you that love Greg Fish in the segment, um, but it is good news in the world of Greg Fish and growth and change. Um, next Tuesday will be the last World of Weird Things segment on the radio in over three years. Uh, Fish is taking on a new career. He's a rodeo clown. He's going to be too busy. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, I mean, the, I'm a little bit concerned about the bulls because I haven't really met with the real ones yet, but mm -hmm. I'm, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. I'm getting also really did good not need jumps. to wear the makeup to the radio show tonight. Just saying. I, I just thought it would be a really nice, uh, nice change of pace. Nice. Uh, all jokes aside, though, Fishy, uh, you're tapping out, are you? Yes and no. I, I think that it, this is actually kind of the reason why I wrote um, the article that we're going to be discussing right now. Um, I've been really taking kind of a long look um, at what's been going on and, and kind of where where I am as uh, as, as a person and and just trying to think of you know it's it's time for to make some changes it, it's time to do some things differently um and that's actually why i wanted to talk about skepticism some of the things that you actually mentioned because the last time that we talked you uh you, you talked about how 
a lot of things in online skepticism and debunking have really become about righteousness and, and, and being right rather than the actual critical thinking component. And, and you're mm -hmm. right about that. And, but not only are you right about that, there's a lot of other things that are involved in that. And that's kind of one of the things that really made me think and, and made me kind of uh, put all of these thoughts together in a slightly more organized form. So uh, just to be clear, for those who are with us right now, that next week Fish will be here. That's the plan. And Fish will join us as a guest from time to time. The, so he's not necessarily going away. We'll talk him into it. Trust me, that's easy. Um, but when it comes to the, at least for the summertime into the fall, um, the currently scheduled bit here uh, will be replaced with our cyber safety piece. And um, and fish is going to take a break now. Uh, maybe comes back. Always welcome. Let's be honest. His wife likes it when he's here because he's out of the way. So this could be a real thing that uh, that 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 works for us in the big picture. You know, when somebody gets a new job and they start working from home, and then you know the partner's like, "Hey, have you considered going back to the office?" You know, one of those things. So we'll see. We wish you best of luck, though. We know you're going to do great things. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, the one of the big things that I wanted to do a little bit differently is so a lot of times when I do these kinds of pieces and I, I do a lot of the kind of your typical skepticism debunking sort of thing and come on and I say, oh, yeah, this can't happen because X, Y, Z or that's impossible because uh, of such and such. The part that's really missing is what is possible. Now, I try to provide that. But sometimes it, it, there's, there's not enough that comes across. There's not enough of a, a there's not really enough of a alternative vision that's that's presented. And I think that's kind of been a big problem with the organized skeptical movement that actually World of Weird Things was a part of at its inception. So when World of Weird Things started, uh, right after the Great Recession be kicked in. Um, it was really part of all these popular science and skeptical blogs that really kind of try to tackle a lot of things about conspiracy theories, about uh, a lot of scientific misconceptions. And they try to do it from the standpoint of like, let's actually tackle these in an organized way. Let's have a network of people that talk about all these things and explain the science behind them and explain why some of these things are not possible, but also educate people about the actually cool and interesting things that happen in the scientific world. The, the, what does the actual science say and what are some of the inspirational stories that we can get from some of the discoveries that are made by actual scientists. But actually, but I want to say um, about five, six years down the road, that kind of started to sour a little bit because there was a lot of debunking. There's a lot of like, okay, you know, there's uh, okay. We, we've proved that something is something is wrong or something is, is incorrect, but there wasn't more to it. There seems to be have this seems to be this lost way, and this lost way of of opinion where people get to share it so freely, and prove me wrong does not mean you're right. A lack of evidence is not evidence. And that's an important distinction. To your point of skeptical, skepticism being doubtful 
one might say is very close to being curious. Being righteous in not wrong is a problem. Being not wrong does not mean you're right. Being accurate is being accurate. Being factual is being factual. A lack of facts does not mean you are right. That is a comparing apples to tires. And so skepticism, it's okay to be skeptical. It's okay to be doubtful. It's an invitation for, okay, help me understand this. Show me. And to the the point of this particular article in the headline that Fish has here, why we need to resurrect the skeptical movement. This world is a better place when we are doubtful and questioning and skeptical. And I've said this before, and I always get in trouble for it because people get mad at me. I love flat earthers. And the reason why I love flat earthers is fundamentally they ask the question, have you yourself with your own eyes ever seen the earth and know that it's round. Now there's a long list of reasons why we know the world is round, but that particular question is, yeah, you know what? With my own eyes, I have never seen it. And the fact that someone is willing to just ask that question, that's all right. Ask that question. We need to ask that question more often, but this is where the flat earther conversation goes sideways is, just because you haven't seen it doesn't mean that it's not real. And that's where we get ourselves tangled up a little bit. That becomes problematic. And I would like to say this phrase, just because you don't get it doesn't mean that I am wrong. And quite often in today's world, we take it from, I don't get it, you're wrong. And if you're wrong, that means I'm right. That gets us nowhere, Fish, I think, which is evident. Yeah, absolutely. And I do think that using the term skepticism a lot has really kind of done a disservice to it because it kind of equated skeptic with denialist in many ways. And really what we're talking about is we're talking about promoting critical thinking. So, for example, if a flat earther can meet certain conditions and prove to me that at certain distances we don't actually see anywhere the horizon line or things disappearing behind the horizon, I will say, well, crap, there's probably something to this. But the due diligence that I'm going to do is, is to say, okay, what evidence would convince me that I'm wrong? So then let's work with that evidence. Do I see any of these things that would prove that I am wrong? And we can begin that debate. We can have that conversation. I'm happy to have it. And in a lot of World War Things articles that I've written over the years, it does come in as, okay, what would take? What would it take for this to be correct? Let's go through it. Is there evidence for this? And I've entertained a lot of things that seem really silly, and people will say, well, why are you writing about that? And I completely agree with you that you know, the question needs to be asked. Someone might have that question. I want to respond to it, and I want to actually list out what's going on behind the scenes. But the problem really is that if I spend all of my time telling people why certain things aren't true. And then when we start getting into more and more elaborate things, that's when we have to start bumping against limits of expertise because I could go into incredible amounts of detail about how certain artificial neural networks are trained for people who say, well, we're about to have Skynet take over the world. I can sit here and I can explain 
for hours why certain things don't work the way that they appear to be in movies. But at some point, people are going to lose track of what I'm talking about because it starts veering into a level of jargon. It starts veering into the complexity of content that you simply just need education to understand or you need a lot of experience to understand. And people don't really have that. You know, it's not it's also not really viable to say, well, to have this conversation, you need to have a degree in computer science, too, and then we can talk. You know, that that's that's not a workable alternative either. So. So a lot of popular science bloggers and, and skeptics really stuck to kind of, you know, here's our, here's the thing about UFO and UFO abductions and chupacabras and Bigfoot and whatnot. And at some point, like, we get it. We can move on to something else. And a lot of times, uh, or or homeopathy, that was another favorite one. Like, yes, we, we, we understand this part. But then let's move on from that. What other things can we tackle? What other things can we talk about? What other things can we examine? How can we promote that, that, that kind of a a cell where critical thinking leads you? And because that didn't happen, because a lot of people and, and I world where things included, like I'm not, I'm not perfect in this, (laughs) in this situation. Um, a lot as as a lot of popular science bloggers, a lot of skeptical bloggers kind of started spinning in circles and everyone kind of lost interest in covering the things that they had to say because they've heard it all before. It really kind of just opened the room for other people to come in and hijack the conversation, whatever gets the clicks, whatever gets the views, whatever gets the outrage. And now we are in that world where, well, I think that I'm right and I know that I'm right because you can't prove me wrong or mm-hmm. you or I can just say, well, that doesn't sound right to me. And that's good enough. You know, confirmation bias rules. I can find a link on the Internet that says whatever I want or backs up whatever I want. And I can use that and I can say, there you go. Facts, you're debunk. I'm right. And continue on from there. And the conversation becomes incredibly unhealthy and detached from reality because now instead of arguing about facts, about instead of actually having the debate, it's more about who can post the most links that agree with them and leave it at that. Off topic is convenient. You have to remember that off topic is convenient. If you're in an argument with your partner or a colleague or whatever uh, disagreement of some sort, Anything off topic is convenient. It distracts away from the accuracy of what is going on. I would say this to the point of the flat earther. Somebody says, well, I can see as far as I can see and the earth is not round. It is flat. The question at that point is not about is the earth flat or round. The question is, how good is your eyesight? Right. And can your eyes see everything, which we know Science, research, accuracy says our eyeballs do not see everything that is around us. Brain science also says not only do we not see everything around us, but our brain inserts default images in order to save processing power of images we've already seen. So there are all kinds of understood, factually accurate reasons why we cannot see that the earth is round. And so that distraction from the topic, which, by the way, this is a mega tactic if you're ever in a negotiation or in a conversation with your partner that is a disagreement of some sort. Distracting away from the topic usually means they got nothing to say. 
because they have to distract away from what's going on because they have no argument to support it. So they will argue something else, try to create righteousness. So it's uh, it's a great tactic in conversation. I would go this far, Greg. Right and wrong don't exist. It's about morality and we use the wrong language. And I would say as the word guy, we should use accurate or inaccurate. And that is it. And honestly, I'm fine with that, especially because something that can something can be scientifically correct today. But 10 years from now, we can look back at something that I said and say, oh, well, that was actually wrong because we have all these studies that now prove that this was incorrect. And you know what? I'm fine with that. I understand that it's entirely possible that my opinions will on certain topics will change, that my views on certain topics will change. I've actually written a number of articles where I started off with, okay, this is what the thesis is going to be. And as I did my research, I went, oh, no, actually, let me go ahead and flip-flop because I found evidence that I'm incorrect. And I was about yeah, to give people backwards. incorrect information. Yeah. So, yeah. and and that's fine. And that's what we should be, that's what should we should be encouraging. But the question really becomes, how can we do it in a way that is more engaging than it's been done before? Because this right. whole debate me thing is not working. This whole, well, I'm going to take this news story and I'm going to fact check and I'm going to debunk it isn't working because people just dig in their heels now and that's considered acceptable to just say, well, that doesn't sound right to me. Or I have well, alternative I found, facts. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I have alternative facts. So that doesn't work. So what do you have to do? You have to show some alternative vision for how the world can look like if you apply critical thinking, if you apply the actual science, if you can kind of paint a picture of where can exercise that critical thinking actually lead you and, and frame it from a standpoint of not just I'm right, you're wrong, or I'm accurate and you're inaccurate, but from the standpoint of this is where a dogmatic worldview leads versus this is where a more flexible worldview worldview leads. And at the same time, I, I do think that the, that the biggest problem that has been honed in on by a lot of um, fact checkers and, and skeptics and debunkers is that they really focus on which claims are accurate versus which claims are not. And what they really need to focus on is in in certain cases where you where you have someone who's propagating conspiracy theories, where you have someone who's propagating disinformation, what really happens is not that they're saying something that's inaccurate. What they're doing is, is much worse because what they are essentially doing is they, they say, oh, I'm just asking questions. I'm the skeptic. I'm the person who's giving you the, who's, who's really researching this. But when it counters, but when you have information that counters the narrative that they want to sell, they immediately go and discard that. They don't engage in it. They just say, no, this is fake news. This is fake science. This is by big pharma, this is by shills, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So you can keep beating your head against the wall from this standpoint or from, from, from that angle, or you can try and figure out how to do something different. Truth is the truth. There is no such thing as my truth. You are not entitled to your own version of the truth. Perspective, sure. Opinion. Meh, most people won't care about yours, but yeah, you're allowed it. But your perspective is your perspective. The truth is the truth. In most cases, 
in life, we do not know the truth. In fact, we will never know the truth. Some might say this whole journey of our lives is to find the truth. But yet we throw it around, like you're talking about fish, all over the internet as the truth, which is not truth. It is just perspective. The truth is the truth. Facts are agreements widely accepted to be accurate. Accurate is having as much information as available and sharing that information. That is how it works. And if it is not true, it can be accurate. It can also be a fact. It can be true and not a fact. And it can be inaccurate or accurate. We have to understand the distinction of those pieces. I love this. This is good because when you can dig into that and, and be critical about what these things mean and how they function in our lives, you can actually be a skeptic and be productive in skepticism. I think it's a beautiful thing, Fish. Yeah, and, and that's really kind of what I want to take some time to do and figure out how, how do I do things differently? How do I communicate things differently? How do I do it more effectively? And uh, on, on some of the things that we talked about, the, the bad incentives and in a number of public forums and places, how do we change that? I, you know, I can write code. I, I know people here and there. I can do some, I can do something new. I can do something interesting. And I, I want to take some time to figure it out a little bit more and a little bit better and do some experiments and see if, you know, maybe some of these things that we talked about, I can actually do. I am skeptical you're going to be gone for long. Uh, and that's the truth. <laughs> it's not the truth. That's my perspective. See what I did there. Um, here's a great way to finish this fish for uh, this this particular chat. It's from Malcolm, who's at uh, the Vancouver airport. He says, my late father had a great little saying. When he accepted another view, he would say, I stand corrected. And what a beautiful powerful place that is as a human being to accept an invitation from someone to understand your perspective. And it's a beautiful thing. Okay. So that link is up by the way, um, skeptical movement and it's resurrection from Greg fish at shiftheads.ca next week, this time, the last scheduled one anyway, before he takes a break that may or not be very long because we'll see with Mrs. Fish if she kicks him out. <laughs> Thanks for being here, buddy. Always a pleasure. This is the Shift Podcast. Are you? Are you? Are you? Okay. 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 Are you okay with? 877-399-9898. That is our phone number for you to let us know your thoughts on uh, all these little topics that we have that are you okay with. Are you okay with? Actually sounds an awful lot like my great Dane. Does. When she's impatient looking for food. Are you okay with pigs? Wink, wink. Uh, yeah, I am. I am okay with pigs. I'm not a big pork guy, like food-wise. It's, it's really? my least favorite of the... It's uh, cheap. Uh, it is cheap, but I don't really love it. But pigs are really interesting animals. Like, 
you know, you've got your traditional farm ones and you've got like the ones that are trained to find truffles, um, some that are pets and they're, uh, much smarter than dogs, which is also really interesting because you kind of grow up thinking they're stinky, dirty animals, which they are, but they're also very smart, very smart mm. animals. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, pigs are fun. Pigs with names are better. Now to the story of a pig that is inspiring others. One pot-bellied <laughs> pot pig has certainly endured his share of problems. Chris P. Bacon was born without the use of his... <laughs> you have to read this story. <laughs> We cannot. Oh my God. <laughs> wow. Uh, coming a little unwound. The pig in this story, also great nickname, also probably braver than most of us. If there was a medal for animal bravery, then Vancouver Island pig named Barbecue would definitely qualify. That's not nice to Barbie. Uh, Barbie came snout to snout with a very hungry bear. Unless you say it wasn't Barbecue who backed down. Over the weekend, six-year-old Barbecue proved once again pig-headed pays off. Dance? The Hobby Farm's owner, Crystal Walls, was on vacation in Oregon when she got a call from the house sitter saying there had been an issue in the animal pen. Came down around nine to feed the animals and they normally will meet me at the gate and there was no one meeting me at the gate and I just had a really creepy feeling. The fence had been torn down, a bag of feed destroyed, yet all of the animals were accounted for. Everybody was safe, yeah. And so they turned to the security cameras for clues. There's the bear right there. Watching what unfolds you might think when pigs fly, but bear with me. At around 4.30 Sunday morning, the animal enters the pen and a standoff of sorts ensues. The bear just approached her and she stayed in the same stance and he came too close and she told him to back off. It looks as if the bear is about to leave, but instead takes a seat. And he starts moving his paw around at her. As if to say, I come in peace, but barbecue wasn't having it. Instead, rushing into the pen, signaling to the rest of the animals to stay back. Finally, after roughly 30 minutes, the bear saunters off. <laughs> it's a great story. It's so cute. It That's is. Kylie Stanton from Global. It's so cute. I just love how they're like, they're like, hello, I come in peace. <laughs> oh, God. I love how we humanize animals. It's cool. The family are now electrifying the fence to make sure that everyone is protected next time they travel. And to, they'll take guard dogs with them. As for that little bear, the little piggy made it go wee, wee, wee all the way home. <laughs> Oh, Ryan. It's very oh, good. I didn't write that one. That's all cool. You didn't write that? No, I didn't write that one. No, no. Oh. I was thinking, I was like, I should add a pun. And then I scrolled to the bottom of the story on globalnews.ca and I saw that and went, well, I can't top that. So it's going in the script. <laughs> very good then. Well done. Yes. Very good. Are well you done. okay with dinosaurs? Yes. Yeah. Because 
awesome. My daughter's in a splint after a football injury this weekend, and it's at the elbow. Oh, she's got like So everywhere she goes, she looks like <laughs> a T-Rex. So she comes down the hallway, and like a good dad, I look at her, and I stop what I'm doing, and I go, raw. <laughs> and then I walk away. <laughs> um, Does not make the elbow feel one. better, by the way, in case you're wondering. No, no, of course not. Mm. Well, dinosaurs are cool. I've been fascinated with dinosaurs since well, when I was a kid when I went to the Tyrell Museum in, in Drumheller and then uh, obviously Jurassic Park. And then I, I read Jurassic Park. Uh, don't let your small children read that book. It is terrifying. Like Steven Spielberg turned Jurassic Park into like kind of a cool adventure movie that's got a couple of great scenes that are a little spooky no jurassic park the book is straight up terrifying that was uh a little a bit of a surprise but that's kind of reflects what dinosaurs are they're objectively cool but if you came face to face with one you'd be really glad you would wish that they were still extinct Rawr. Rawr. Uh, i um i want to know something i just learned about dinosaurs what did you just learn about dinosaurs that Jurassic Park is a book. Yeah, you didn't know that it was originally a book, no. really? Yeah, New Lo- idea. Lost World. Yeah, yeah, it was. Absolutely. Um, See? Yeah. No idea. Yeah. It's a Thank great book. Mm. Fantastic book. I don't like scary movies, but I like the book. Uh, mm, you've seen Jurassic Park, right? Yeah. Yeah. So remember the scene where Newman from Seinfeld gets attacked by like the acid spraying dinosaur in the rain? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that scene in the book made me put the book down for a night and read it. So I don't think you'd like the book. Thank it's you. pretty scary. Yep. Very good. Hear that, everyone? Ryan said, Shane, don't read things. That's what I yep. heard. Uh, we've seen dinosaurs all over the place. We see them on TVs and in movies, right? We all have a picture. They're kind of cartoony, but really we don't know what they looked like. It's a bit of an assumption. Yeah, a lot of science and a lot of research, and you know they've got a pretty good idea. They're pretty ugly. Police in South Dakota were actually hunting for a dinosaur last week. Sioux Falls Police Sergeant Aaron Benson said a security officer spotted three people carrying a giant velociraptor statue. Thankfully, some very entertaining security camera footage helped police keep the dino statue from going extinct. When officers knocked on a door, a woman answered and the dinosaur was right behind her. Just a, a good resolution to the case. I know those dinosaur statues are popular. A lot of people take pictures with them on the pavilion. So uh, we were able to return that item back to the Washington Pavilion after it was seized by the detectives. And uh, there's, they were very grateful with the quick resolution. Police arrested three people for theft. That includes two adults and juvenile. Since the statue is worth more than $1,000, they are all charged with grand theft. Wow. Um, grand theft dino. <laughs> uh the there, statue oh, go ahead sorry i was just gonna say there are mods for grand theft auto 5 like modifications on the video game where you can change all the cars to dinosaurs it is oh, right. absolutely hilarious and now i kind of wish i could ride a dinosaur uh mm-hmm. uh you can uh go sit on like maybe a crocodile you can do mm-hmm. that yeah right. yeah yeah no it's They're t- basically dinosaurs Bad, bad advice. Don't do that. The statue and many other dinosaur representations are part of the Dinosaurs in the Wild exhibit at Washington's Pavilion of Science. And uh, officials are evaluating how they can better secure the dinosaur statue. 
Perhaps putting it on a deserted island with other dinos. Good question. I was thinking maybe a leash. <laughs> yeah, leash. Yeah, if they don't bite it off. Mm. Or substitute a real velociraptor and have it stand still. Mm-hmm. And then have a sign that says, free dinosaur. Free. Are you okay with lawn decorations? Mm. Well, eh, at Halloween, about- of course. Christmas, absolutely. Yeah, uh, Christmas, yeah, you know, like inflatables for sure. Um, but uh, it's when those they stay there, you know. Like uh, there's a there's a house near Laura's that had a Minions, like a Despicable Me Christmas tree inflatable that was up until mid February, and it's yeah. like this is too long. This this is too long. We're past the celebrate. threshold. Celebrate, man! I say celebrate. I it's not the Happy ones. New Year. After three days, after after New Year's Eve, so Christmas is just that's just way too long. Well, was it inflated or was it just lying there? Oh, it was just lying there. Oh, well, I've seen a couple of houses in my neighborhood that, like, well after February, they still have their Christmas displays just sitting there, getting faded away and baked in the sun. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. right. I can't believe this stuff doesn't last. It's been on your lawn for four months, sir. Yep. Anyway, an Ohio woman said she has no plans to remove a nearly 10-foot-tall werewolf statue from her yard despite a warning from the city and despite the fact that it's not Halloween. Werewolves don't just live at Halloween, Ryan. Mary Simmons of Dayton said she bought the 9.5-foot werewolf as a Halloween decoration last October and then decided to leave it up all year. Why wouldn't you? She says she left him up simply because she loves Halloween. She does tell me, though, that it is actually very safe and there's no public safety concern. He's got a cable that, that pins him down to the back. And then the platform itself, it has pens in it. It's staked into the ground. So in order to get him out, we have to take all those stakes up and, and then take all that out. So, I mean, you really have to toss one to try to get him to fall down. The city of Piqua says they received an anonymous complaint about the werewolf. They followed protocol and wrote an informal, uh, excuse me, an informal warning. But at this point, there's really no further action that the city is taking. And again, the homeowner tells me she is not taking it down anytime soon. Dayton 24-7 now, right there. It's worth noting that the werewolf has sunglasses and draped in an American flag. City officials say they have no plans to further enforce the werewolf's removal at this time. Simmons said she plans to keep Phil in her yard. (laughs) His name is Phil. I forgot to mention his name is Phil. Sorry. (laughs) Oh, and she's taken measures to ensure his presence is safe for neighbors. Oh, Phil. Philly Phil. I'm okay with, I mean, like, if you leave it up, whatever. It, It make it goofy looking. Adding the sunglasses and the American flag make it less spooky. But I just know, like, if I was drunk stumbling home and looked at a neighbor's house and saw a giant 10 feet tall werewolf statue, that might freak me out. But mm. other than that, it's your property. You can do whatever you That's want. That's all, eh? Yeah, yeah, sure. Why not? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. No. Mm-hmm. Are you okay with herds? Herds. Herds. Uh, yeah, I've never really seen a herd. Like a like a gaggle. Uh, what's a gaggle? Geese. It's a herd of geese. A, a gaggle of geese? Are you serious? Yeah, you didn't know that. 
No, it's ridiculous. Who think who thinks of these things? Let's call oh ooh, that's a group of crows. What could we call it? Murder. Yeah. <laughs> Why? Why would we do that? Who comes up with You these think names? you would call a group of geese murder? There is a really great um it's a great meme that was posted at shifthead.ca on the Facebook group that was how the world see Canadian geese. And they're like pretty and fluffy. Mm-hmm. And then how Canadians see can- the Canada goose, and it looked like they had a velociraptor. Which, by the way, Trucker Dan says he would love a velociraptor as a lawn ornament. Uh, he also did say Barbecue, the pig, has a lot of chops to stand up to that bear, which I thought was fun. It's very, yeah, it's good. It's the best pun of the night so far. <laughs> Are you okay with herds? Okay, herds. Yeah, sure. I mean, like a herd of... of uh, elk in a field and stuff yeah sure i like herd of horses parade of elephants absolutely um herds are majestic in the wild your front lawn not so much if you ever get a chance to go to banff alberta by the way maybe even jasper you can see these herds of elk that basically walk onto people's lawns like they can't leave the front door of their house they've got to go out the back door Now, a massive herd of goats invaded a small town in Texas this week, eating bushes, flowers, and lawns. No greenery was spared in this story. We woke up and I said, Marlon, you won't believe what what happened on the cove this morning. Nobody would believe it. 40 goats on my lawn. Until they saw it from multiple house cameras that caught it. It was late Saturday, early Sunday. They were coming down the road right there just really slowly and just kind of chilled out right here. 40 goats broke from the herd that was grazing at a nearby development. Normally tasked with eating down the vegetation, helping with fire season, instead took a stroll through this neighborhood. I think they ate a little bit from everybody's yard uh, all the way around the circle here. Uh, in fact, one of the guys was just uh, just on two legs eating my tree. It was... Uh, pretty pretty wild naturally a few yards were picked clean including garrett pearsall's bushes it actually did us a favor because we were going to pull them uh, probably this weekend or next anyways i did not have a goat on his two legs eating my trees on my shift bingo card for this morning there is video of that happening by the way it is a bizarre sight uh, WFAA, by the way, was the channel. A small group of 40 goats eventually reunited with a larger herd of goats that was nearby. The firm that employs the goats, I feel like employs is inaccurate for a word, <laughs> uh, yeah, did that's... not want to be part of this story. But WFAA was told the firm did replace the parts of the yard that the goats destroyed, which would be really great if they showed up and replaced the bushes that they wanted to take out anyway. That's the best mm-hmm. part of the story. Yeah, Plus, goats will jump is. on your car. Just so you know, not good. Just not so ideal. You know. No, I had a friend of mine. They're like, we want to have a goat farm. And then they moved to an acreage and they got some goats. And then they had to get body work down on their hood. <laughs> why, why do you think the goats jump on the cars? They climb things. That's true. They are climbers. The Coombs, so they just... BC, they live on the roof of the building. Right there. Goats on the roof. You got to go. I guess you why not? Had a chance. Do it. Go. Yeah, Check it do out. it. Go are cool. Careful yeah. to jump on you. Thanks for listening to the Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.